hello there. You are listening to an episode of Den Discussions, in which I, Daniel James Sharp, converse with people I find interesting, and who would answer my email, on subjects that I also find interesting. These conversations are posted semi-regularly on my substack, Daniel's Den, on which, among other things, I also write, and to which, of course, I heartily recommend you subscribe. Anyway, on to today's discussion. Let us begin. Hello. Today my guest is Ben Sixsmith, a writer and the online editor for The Critic magazine. He also writes on his substack, The Zone. He's somebody that I enjoy reading a lot, uh, though I do very often disagree with him. Uh, Today we're just going to have a pretty informal discussion and I'll try to structure it around some questions or discussion points, uh, particularly uh, relating to recent articles of his that I found um, interesting. Uh, but we might wander off um, anywhere, you know, God knows. So, first of all, Ben, hello, how are you? Hello, Daniel, thanks for having me. I'm very well, thank you. So, I suppose to begin with, um, well, tell us about you. What, what is, what, who is Ben Sixsmith? <laughs> That's both uh, a, very, a very broad and a very narrow subject. Yes. <laughs> I mean, in particular, um, uh, you know, your work at The Critic um, and also your, your sort of uh, your trajectory as a, as a freelancer, you know, a freelance writer to now one of those anointed few who holds a, an actual real job, paying job in the writing world. How did how did that happen? What, what is the secret of that? So I started uh, writing for online magazines like Quillette and Aereo. Uh, which you've written for, of course, when they were very small. Uh, and I, I knew of their editors through Twitter, so I just started gamely sending in my little articles, most of which I'm sure I couldn't bear to read anymore. Um, and this was around the time where what has unfortunately become known as the intellectual dark web was kicking off. So these kind of online platforms got more traction and some of us ended up getting invited to write for, I don't want to say more illustrious magazines, because uh, these online magazines are illustrious as well, but more magazines with more heritage, let's say, uh, which could pay. And then there was just more money in the sphere generally, so different online outlets could pay as well. And uh, like most people who write, I was juggling that with uh, unrelated full-time job for many years and then somehow last year I managed to hop into uh, a job with The Critic which is an excellent English uh, magazine that appears online and in print and I'm now uh, fortunate enough to be the online editor which means a lot of commissioning a lot of sub-editing a lot of tweeting and just generally a lot of fun stuff trying to put out interesting writing and interesting media power <laughs> great power yes no um yeah no i remember i think 
you've said at one point that your advice to any writers or would be writers is, uh, you know, have have a day job. Um, so you know, you know, because you're unlikely to make money in writing unless unless you get a job, which is, you know, quite difficult to do. Um, and you used to work, I think, as a as a as a teacher in Poland, English language um, translator teacher. Yeah, yeah, I was I was doing the the TAFL thing. Yeah. Uh, first, kind of just because of a lack of other options, and then it slowly became something more like a career, uh, but also something that was fairly good to juggle with writing. Partly because uh, I lived in a country, and I still live in a country with a relatively low cost of living, so the relatively small freelance payments go a lot further, and also because. I don't want to say that there, are, you know, there's low hours, but it's not like being a teacher in uh, a comprehensive school where you would spend half the night planning and half the morning marking and uh, half of your holiday wishing you were dead. So uh, <laughs> it, it was a good, it was a good yeah. job. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm sure. Um, you know, I would I would agree with that. I mean, I I mean personally, I I, I still you know have a. a a sort of boring day job which is also quite congenial to writing but at the same time I'm also like my great advice is is, is sheer laziness yeah, yeah, yeah. do the least that you can possibly do and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's 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 like the opposite of George Orwell just completely complete lack of worth it work ethic, work ethic. Um, and I mean there are some writers who can just like Every now and again, they'll put up just a fantastic article, and it beats the ten articles I feel like that I've written in the interim. Uh, but it's so high quality, it makes up for it. So uh, there's, there's something to be said for that more languid attitude towards work. I mean, it was Bertrand Russell who had an essay called "In Praise of Idleness," even if uh, he wasn't himself a very idle man. <laughs> but definitely, if you want to make it professionally. Sadly, there is a certain amount of, you know, hashtag grind set mm. <laughs> that goes into it. Yeah. So um, here's here's one question I had, which, again, is a very, it's both a very narrow question and a very broad question. Um, and it's kind of inspired by one of your Substack pieces that you wrote a little while back, maybe a few weeks ago or something. Mm. Um, where you discussed, uh, you know, the the the, the pitfalls of, of having a worldview, mm. um, and I was I was pretty skeptical in a way because I think everybody has some kind of worldview, mm. and even though you disavow the idea, what does Ben's ideal world look like, politically, socially, and economically? If you had unlimited power, what what does your ideal world look like? What's your worldview, essentially? I'm a fairly disorganized person. So if I had unlimited power, then very soon, you know, buildings would be collapsing and <laughs> the drains would be overflowing and the ports would be clogged up with ships. Um, it, it's a tough question to answer, partly because um, I don't have like a natural constituency anymore in as much as I'm I'm an immigrant. So it's I don't really have any uh, claims that I make for the politics of the nation that I live in, because that isn't so much my business, which is why my writing tends to focus slightly more on 
kind of abstract issues or satire and slightly less on day-to-day politics. Um, definitely without wanting to write a white paper, uh, I think I would have, uh, I'm, tr- I'm, I'm, I'm trying to choose the right words to frame this so that I don't sound like I want to work for a think tank and <laughs> uh, take a kind of SW1 approach to politics. But I, I, I think I'd want to have a slightly more restrained and ambitious attitude restrained in the sense of being skeptical of uh, how much cultural change can progress and ambitious in the sense of um how much kind of institutional development is possible so as, as an example of the former uh i'm pretty uh, skeptical when it comes to uh immigration I'm pretty skeptical when it comes to more kind of idealistic foreign policy. But then as an example of the latter, I'd say um, I could be somewhat reluctantly classified as a Yimby. I think a lot of uh, European problems have to do with not really wanting to build anything. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of inertia when it comes to dealing with energy policy and just kind of hoping that some prime minister in the future is going to sort it out rather than grasp the nettle that is uh, nuclear power or whatever else we need to do to keep the lights on over the next 10 years. So a, a little bit a little bit less starry-eyed idealism, but a little bit more uh, hard-nosed pragmatism, I guess. Well, since you mentioned nuclear power, um, I mean, I, I, you know, on that, I think that's one of the great failures of um, the environmental movement broadly conceived uh, as their refusal to entertain the possibility that nuclear power might be a solution um, to, uh, you know, energy and climate change and all the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm someone's, I, I have a, a measure of sympathy in as much as if my city council was like, hey, guys, great news. We've decided to build a nuclear power station outside the town. It's wonderful. Lots of local jobs. Uh, I wouldn't be at all pleased. And I would, uh, I would have a rush of the same kind of concerns that motivate them. So, so I do get it. Uh, on the other hand, unless you want to be a kind of um, Ted Kaczynski's shack-dwelling uh, collapsitarian, which is, you know, I, I can understand being so. I guess it's, it's a world coherent worldview. But unless you want to embrace that coherent worldview, you really would need to have some kind of alternatives and vaguely gesturing towards the sun and the wind mm. isn't a cover. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, maybe it's just me. I mean, I wouldn't actually mind having a nuclear power station nearby. I, I think well, one, just, one thing, like one thing I find slightly way. curious about uh, <laughs> that strand of environmental thought is we're, we're surrounded by nuclear weapons all the time. And I, yeah. I completely understand that those same people wish we weren't surrounded by nuclear weapons and would like to get rid of them. I do understand that. But uh, if anything, that seems more dangerous than a future, maybe with more nuclear power and fewer nuclear weapons, fingers crossed. Uh, But it's it's not an area I'm gonna claim to be an expert on. Uh, But yeah, you need to to be pro some fairly ambitious energy planning or 
you know, pro retreating into the forest with a handful of pamphlets. But this is, this is the nuclear energy experts podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, another thing you mentioned there, though, actually, that I just uh, wanted to pick up on. Um, you said that you know, as an immigrant to Poland, you are not particularly, uh, you know, not well. You're engaged, I assume, in the politics, but you don't want to comment on it. You would feel that would be presumptuous, mm. um, to to you know be very public about your political opinions um, on, on, on the national scene, um, which is interesting. I mean, do you, is, is there a point at which you think you would ever feel comfortable enough to do that? Uh, which, because I mean, it almost sounds like you're saying that you don't feel like a pole. You're not a pole. Um, but at what point, when one moves to another country and, and lives there for a long time and makes a life there, at what point do you think that one becomes, you know, a, a, a citizen, uh, you know, a true resident of that country? I think I'd, I'd, I'd as a, a kind of, I almost said public figure, I'm definitely not that, but a kind of public facing commentator, uh, I wouldn't want to leapfrog. Public adjacent. Yeah, public adjacent. I like that. Public adjacent commentator. I wouldn't want to leapfrog the polls who have more informed opinions, which also relate to the country they were born in. So I, I think uh, certainly once you become a citizen, you have much more of a right to comment on those affairs. Um, but I, I think I still wouldn't. Uh, I'd, I'd still be hesitant about elevating my voice over those of the people who've welcomed me into the national community. So it's, it's there's no kind of very clear guidelines. I mean, uh, I have written things before um, related to the nation's politics, even if I think I, I do it substantially less to not at all now. Uh, but I think I'll always be somewhat hesitant. And there is a huge dollop of hypocrisy in there. And as much as I'm quite willing to comment on the politics of nations that I've never, ever been to and have no connection with whatsoever. But I think that's a little bit like how gossiping about someone you don't know at all always feels somehow yeah. appropriate than gossiping about someone you like. Uh, so it's 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 not uh, it's not something that's without tinges of moral ambiguity and hypocrisy but I, definitely the first stage would be citizenship yeah no i um I, I know you didn't mean it this way but when you said i wouldn't want to elevate my voice above those who were born here um it just uh, it made me think of um uh you know the the quote-unquote woke idea that you know you shouldn't elevate your voices above Indigenous, LGBTQ, whatever voices, uh, you know, you don't have a right to do that. Mm. Whether that's yeah, just well, superficial observation, I don't know. But I mean, I think it depends on what we conceive of as a community. Um, maybe I could draw a distinction between things that are entirely fact-based and then things which um, are more related to people's values. Um I'd be more comfortable commenting on the is than the ought, mm. if that makes sense. But even then, as someone who, uh, you know, there, there is, I, I don't go along with the whole kind of cultural appropriation, lived experience, blah, blah, blah kind of thing in toto. 
But generally, even in fairly absurd ideas, there's a kind of grain of truth. And I, I guess the grain of truth there is just being hesitant about running your mouth before you're entirely informed about something. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. what you're saying is that you're a, a woke social justice warrior. I do. I do. <laughs> oh. um, Careful with the pronouns. <laughs> I guess I should have started by asking what your pronouns are. I'm so uh, sorry. It, it and you. <laughs> I will respect those. So, it. One of your other recent articles was, well, actually, I mean, maybe I'm a bit because this all seems like quite a while ago now. But these are these are the things that I thought were quite interesting. Mm. Um, you you wrote a, a good article for the critic about um, Quran Gate, um, mm. and perhaps this is slightly stereotypical of me uh as in i'm being um you know i'm stereotyping you but um in the article you mentioned you said uh you know this is the sort of thing that shouldn't be allowed to happen in a secular country like britain which uh I, and again it is quite possibly very superficial of me but i was kind of struck by that phrase it didn't sound like a phrase that you would use normally um, so I don't I don't know if you want to explain what Quran Gate was firstly, and then perhaps comment on that if it's worth commenting on. Yeah, so it was a case in which uh, some boy in uh, an Eng English northern English town uh, called Wakefield had been dared to bring a copy of the Quran to school, and then somehow this copy had been scuffed, and it was blown up into this scandal of enormous proportions, partly by the school's hysterical response and partly by some very aggressive responses from uh, some local Muslims. Uh, and, you know, the boys had to apologize. They were facing death threats. Uh, the mother of one of the boys uh, ended up going into a local mosque to kind of plead with the community uh, for support against people who might do harm to her son. And uh, there was even local councillors and police officers who were kind of throwing these boys under the bus for, even if you consider it a transgression, which I don't really accept in as much as uh, I guess you could characterise it as a little foolish, but uh, I'm not sure I'd want to even bite that bullet because uh, sometimes it's necessary to provoke uh, people, yeah, I'm not. Well, I, I don't know, but de definitely the the worst you could say about it was that it was slightly ill advised. But they were being treated as if they'd, you know, committed one of the most heinous transgressions conceivable against the Islamic community. In air quotes, um, and obviously, I thought this was a, a, a terrible way to treat these young men, and just a terrible representation of. Uh, Britain's national values so uh, I wrote a piece trashing it um, and yeah it's, it's a fair point about the use of uh, secular society there I mean it wouldn't be acceptable in a Christian society as well it would defy that nation's values uh, and you know obviously I don't think it would be acceptable in a Muslim country but I'd be slightly more reticent about commenting on it then because oh, wait so wait sorry so wait I, I mean I'm not sure that 
Do you mean scuffing the Bible in a Christian society? It would obviously not be. Uh, no, 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 I mean uh, treating uh, four bo- four boys who'd just been slightly. Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah. and, sorry. No, I uh, thought you meant. Um, no, no, no. I mean this this kind of treatment of the boys for, you know, general teenage behaviour. It wouldn't be acceptable anywhere. Um, but I guess especially in a society where, um, excuse me, uh, where no no one kind of religious belief system is meant to be preeminent over the others, uh, it's it's kind of especially defies uh, the norms that are meant to be upheld, even if they're often not. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, I, obviously, if it was a Christian, explicitly Christian society, I would protest in very similar terms um and yeah i dread to think of what would happen if that, that had taken place in uh a state defined by an islamic influence on politics i mean god knows yeah i mean uh, it was just another instantiation of the um you know the the self-appointed community leaders of the islamic um, populace, um, which is such a strange phenomenon that these these bearded men have all the power. Um, you know, you never see a female Islamic uh, community leader who is invited to, uh, you know, pass judgment on these events when it happens. Um, it, it, was, it was the same with Salman Rushdie as well. He was, uh, you know, faced with, uh, you know, a council of 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 uh, imams and and so on and so forth, uh, you know, to to apologise for the satanic verses, um, and you know somehow they've gained the legitimacy that comes with being the spokespersons of of a particular religious community, when in fact there are quite a lot of people in those communities who are, who are not at all on their side. But those are the people who we go to. Um, those are the people who um, mothers have to don a hijab and kneel in front of and apologize when their kid scuffs a Quran by mistake. It's uh, it's completely absurd, I think. Yeah, I very much agree. I mean, uh, I can see if I try to reduce my brain and my soul to the level of a local politician, I can <laughs> see how it, it must make sense to them from a kind of real politic perspective where that they just want some mechanism by which to ease uh, inflamed feelings. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I the only tiny little toe bone that I'll throw to the, the counsellor involved and to the imam involved is I, th- I think they genuinely didn't want there to be any kind of violent response, uh, which wasn't being led by them. It was being led by people, maybe even schoolboys, I'm not sure, who were texting uh, nasty messages, but there was still the presumption that the real uh, ag- aggressors here, you know, the real criminals, uh, morally if not legally, were the boys who had uh, scuffed the Quran. So yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not going to let them off the hook morally. No, uh, but I, I, I guess what I'm saying is I can I can kind of see how uh, the, the the coward in this situation would go to them as a kind of representative of the affronted to try and strike mm. a kind of diplomatic deal. But what does that say about society that we've got ourselves into a position where uh, it's sufficiently balkanized that we need these kind of representatives at all? 
And then, as you say, sometimes these representatives, as in the case of the satanic verses, are not at all trying to ameliorate the situation. They are themselves inflaming the situation where uh, if they, if it hadn't been for them, people might have just been focused on their day-to-day lives and wouldn't have kicked up such a fuss about it. So, You know, you, you have, I mean... I mean, clearly there is this strain in those communities. Otherwise, you know, these community leaders wouldn't exist. Um, but the idea that they're, you know, representative of some completely homogenous block of people is, yeah. I think, very insulting, actually, to, to, to Muslims. Because there are, there are plenty of Muslims who, you know, don't agree with, um, you know, hauling... Uh, some school kids um, into the public spotlight to, uh, um, you know, because they scuffed a Quran, uh, who don't agree that Salman Rushdie uh, should have been killed um, or his book burnt. Um, and those, I think, are the people that really actually would do much uh, better to listen to. But for some reason, um, it's the most conservative and reactionary representatives of Islam that, that uh, see, they get the most spotlight, they get the most, um, you know, we, we see them as the legitimate representatives of the community. I think Britain, Britain has, modern Britain has a really toxic combination of devolution and multiculturalism, uh, which might sound like a, a really str- two strange things to be conflated. But I think devolution has encouraged the perception that the kind of loudest and most energetic figures in a community are the organic and proper and appropriate voices of those community. Uh, You only have to watch one of those pandemic era Zoom Skype meetings of a local council and you you can hear somebody railing against the construction of a fence and if you kind of squint, you might almost imagine that it was some Iranian imam denouncing Salman Rushdie. Uh, so these, these these two forces in British politics and cultural life are doing immense damage. Mm. Yeah. Well, as soon as you mentioned devolution, and this is probably just a um, a result of my personal circumstances and nationality and what have you, but uh, I immediately thought of Scotland mm. and, um, you know, the Scottish Parliament devolution, etc, etc. So to, to go on something of a, a, a digression, uh, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the recent um, shenanigans in Scotland, you know, the SNP, oh, uh, the arrest of Peter Morell and, uh, and all the rest of it, the great corruption of the SNP exposed. Yeah, I mean, look, it looks like we're going to be we're we're going to be national brothers for a good while yet. (laughs) I have a Scottish nationalist friend here, uh, if not a big fan of the SNP, but definitely a big fan of the cause. And I said when he came in, what do you think about the whole SNP thing when he came into the pub the other day? And he just went, it's over. No more independence. (laughs) It's over. We've lost. And yeah, Yeah. I I don't know how much we can say about... uh, uh, the, the case itself because of contempt of court and so on, but definitely the SNP looks like not even so much as it's circling the drain, but it's kind of like diving towards the drain and swimming as fast as possible with the current. Mm. 
try and get down it. It's a, it's an incredible implosion. Yeah, no, I, 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 do, I mean, I occupy a, a kind of strange spot in that debate, I think. Um, you know, I mean, I'm very much in favour of, of the union, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm in favour of it from a, a perspective of, you know, I think Britain as a, as a country is, is the best way to achieve certain ends. I think, um, you know, the redistribution of wealth, the sharing, the pooling of resources, and wealth, you know that that you know that's uh, you know only achievable within the union, um, and you know I see some of my own political ideals, such as the abolition of the monarchy. Um, you know I think those are things that are much more achievable within the union as a as a British um, movement um, than, you know I don't think it's a solution just to break off from Britain because that doesn't necessarily abolish the monarchy. I think these things are are better done within a broader national or perhaps even international movement. Um, I'm not sure if uh, many people would see it this way, but in some way and in many ways, despite itself, I think the union is uh, a, a great and very successful internationalist uh, project and that's my perspective. That's that's why I think it's a good thing, and and we should stay within it. Um, but of course, the the unionist case stereotypically is, um, you know, Protestant Orange Order fanatics who, um, love the Queen or love the Queen, I should say. Um, and you know, I'm completely upset with that. So I don't know if my particular brand of unionism has much appeal. Uh, Do to... I get the sneaking sense that you're not going to be celebrating the coronation in a couple of weeks? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, oh. yes. Yeah. <laughs> you must be joking me here. No, no, I'm, I'm definitely not. Uh, okay. I, I, prom I promise you, absolutely not. Yeah. In fact, the, the, the only, I mean, I think even from a monarchist perspective, if the monarchy was was to end, it should have ended with Elizabeth. I think that's uh, that would have been that would have been a good ending. But now I, I, I can see that argument, but I think it mistakes the absolute principle for the uh, kind of consequentialist uh, circumstance of convenience. I, th I think if you're a true monarchist, then and I'm I, 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 I'm not even necessarily saying this as one, but I think you're, if you're a true monarchist, you you believe in it absolutely. It's almost like saying, yeah, you know, I'm if I'm a Catholic, well, I'm not a big fan of this Benedict guy. Maybe we should just do away with popes. It would be kind of it would be the same thing as saying let's just do away with the whole church. Yeah. Um, if only. So uh, I, I I I kind of I kind of know what you mean. I'm not sure that the monarchy will ever have that same level of respect uh, and prestige again. Um, but it's it's just not something you can you can cut yourself off from uh, if you are one. And now now a lot of people seem to be coming around to Charles belatedly as well. But I'm not sure how much that is uh, <laughs> sincere affection and how much that is uh, respect for the seat. Do you know it's um again I've I've just kind of cycled off an old tangent here, but I just remembered my you know when the Queen died. It was a it was a strange day for me because I was on a train coming down from Edinburgh to, to London, 
and the train got stopped at some point. Um, you know, we another some problem on the track or whatever, so we were stuck there for about an hour, maybe. Um, yes. And that's when the news, when I was, you know, on my phone, the news came through. The Queen's, you know, um, you know, the family's been called to Balmoral, um, and I was like, okay, so this is it. And then as soon as I arrive in London, you know, all of a sudden we've got all these, um, all the billboards and um, signs, you know, it's, it's you know, uh, tributes to the Queen. So obviously she had passed. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that, if that memory is particularly interesting, but it was a memorable day, not just for the Queen's death, but just the, all the circumstances around it. Um, and then once I got to my hotel, um, I wrote a little article about the Queen's death in which I did express some condolences and tried to be as respectful as I could, um, but without sacrificing my, you know, my, you know, my principles. Um, you know, I still call attention to um, some of the criticisms of of Elizabeth, and um, but I tried to do that in a way that wasn't, you know, some vulgar jeering. Um, Republican glorification, you know, um, of of the death of 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 Queen Elizabeth. Um, sorry, I don't know why I just uh, went on that tangent. Well, I think it was. I think it was uh, at the risk of being sentimental. I think it was uh, just a meaningful yeah. experience for everybody, every British person. Uh, royalist or republican i mean it was, it was the kind of day that part of you never never felt would ever really come yeah oh yeah almost as if they would finally crack life extension in a big way just as she was about to pass and then she just carry on as uh, with us all yeah uh, so i i think it was a moving time for everybody yeah no absolutely even people who were writing nasty new york times essays <laughs> Yeah, so I hope um, uh, you know I uh, you know I wanted to get my opinion across, but I didn't want to be vulgar about it, and I hope that I wasn't. Um, because I mean, as I, I mean, I wrote in the article that you know when I was on the train and uh, uh, you know you know all this was going on, uh, you know I phoned my mum uh, back up here in Scotland, and you know she was in tears. You know she's a big royalist fan of the royals. Um, so, you know, I do understand the sorts of, you know, the sort of emotions and, and the feeling, the real feeling that um, uh, that people hold um, in, the, in, the, in these uh, on these occasions. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not completely dismissive of that. Yeah, 100%. So, One other thing, that's 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 what I was thinking of. Um, talking about Britain as a secular country, um, uh, I also wrote a little article a while back in which I poked some fun at Calvin Robinson. Mm. He blocked me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was all about, you know, the, the, the gay marriage, Church of England debate. And... You know, as much as we say Britain is a secular country and, you know, in terms of population and the beliefs, you know, it's a very diverse country and Christianity and in particular Church of England, um, Christianity has declined uh, precipitously. Um, you know, ultimately the, the, the church 
still wields great power, you know, bishops in the House of Lords and faith schools and, you know, the head of state is the head of the church and all that. Um, so my, my perspective on it is, yeah, okay, you know what, actually, I don't really care whether you believe in gay marriage or not. It's, complete, it's your prerogative to believe what you like. Um, but at the same time, if you are, you know, an established state institution, then I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure that you have much of a leg to stand on to complain when politicians um, say, well, maybe you should accept gay marriage. You know, you're, you know, uh, you know, if 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 it's going to be a state institution, you know, it should um, perhaps reflect um, the you know the, the norms of that state, and gay marriage is now very much a, a norm. Uh, you know, if you if you were a private institution, do what you like, but as something established um, by the government. Um, I don't think, I think there's a case at least to be made that um, you should be uh, at least open to being interfered with by people like Penny Mordaunt. Uh, you know, if people want to be open to being interfered with by Penny Mordaunt, then that's <laughs> entirely their prerogative. Uh, I, I, I understand the argument and I think there is Possibly there is a case for disestablishmentarianism. I mean, the practical consequences of that, I'm sure, would be uh, terrible. Um, but there, there might be a moral case for one. Uh, I think there's also a case for maintaining that uh, the Church of England represents... I mean, obviously, I'm speaking as someone who doesn't really agree in many ways with uh, the, air quotes, mainstream values of... Uh, British society. But I think even putting that to one side, I think there's a case for uh, defending the status of the Church of England as representing a particular kind of English thought, uh, British thought, sorry, and uh, heritage, <laughs> um, rather than seeing it in a sense where it has to kind of represent the whole of the nation, rather than representing itself and its specific place within the kind of, it's a cliched term, but the kind of national tapestry of uh, Britain. I, I think that's an argument I'd be sympathetic to. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I do see the case for saying uh, it's it's fine to believe what you want, but maybe let's go our separate ways. I mean, I, I it's, it's an argument it's hard to poke holes in. Whereas I do think the argument of you should just do what we all think is good, regardless of what it says in your outdated old book. And I'm saying all of that in air quotes as well. Uh, I think that's a slightly ridiculous position to hold. Maybe Penny Mordaunt should be coming out in favour of disestablishmentarianism. But yeah, uh, no, uh, I'm, no, not, I'm not sure that more than 10% of our MPs could even pronounce the word. <laughs> Anti-disestablishmentarianism. Oh, wait, no, that's not the word. I added four letters, but never mind. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean, I mean, that's that's kind of the argument that I made, though it's you know not an argument that I particularly um, have any stake in, but I think it'd be a lot better for the church itself to be disestablished. Um, because as long as they're established, you know, they 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 are open to this interference, uh, you know, they 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 wield so significant political power so they can't really escape um uh you know being beholden to politicians um 
try to influence their doctrinal stances. So I think, think it's it, better for the church itself, you know. I think even secularists and liberals and non-believers uh, would be sad in a kind of Larkin-esque way <laughs> when they find that their, you know, the nearest parish church has been converted into a, a nightclub or uh, a mosque or a, a climbing wall, as rather charmingly happened in Bristol near where I used to live. Um, so I think there's that kind of nostalgic case that even secular progressives could make. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I think I think mine would be that you, not every state institution has to reflect the whole of the state. Um, no, but um, on the point, I mean, you know, churches being turned into nightclubs um, and whatever else, you know, that I mean, that's happening anyway. Oh yeah, well indeed, it's, it, it no, would happen a pace if the church didn't have uh, its its links with the state. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a fair point. That's uh, I drew on examples which already exist, so that's not exactly crafting some kind of dystopian speculative fiction. A claiming world, though. Yeah, quite a cool really. You can climb up all the way in the spire, and you know. Oh. Well, I mean, you know, I, I I understand the reservations, the Larkin-esque reservations about that. But on the other hand, I'm kind of, um, I prefer that to them being demolished. You know, at least. I don't know. I don't, it depends on what they're being converted into, I guess. Mm. There are charming ways to use them, and then there are ways um, where you almost think it would be better to just let the memory live and the building die, but it it depends. Okay, we'll probably so we... for a lovely house if you're a very <laughs> rich person. Um. So, yes, I'm not quite sure how we got to this point, but um, uh, I don't know how long I have you for. So I'm just going to quickly move on. Um, I was going to talk about, or I was going to ask about, um. Uh, Iraq, because we both mm-hmm. have our perspectives on those, but I'm not sure that we would gain anything by um, discussing that right now, unless you disagree. In, in which case, let's talk about Iraq and Saddam Hussein. We can, we, we can, what, what could be more back good? What could be better on a Saturday <laughs> evening than kicking back and discussing Iraq? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, we just uh, passed the 20-year anniversary yeah. of the invasion. I know you wrote a, a thoughtful piece. Uh, I wrote uh, for The Critic and uh, on my Substack from a, ver- a very oppositional perspective. And then I know that yours was a more nuanced perspective, or at least kind of a more ambiguous perspective, let's say. Well, I mean, I would say it was still, you know, essentially pro but with some pretty hefty reservations. Yeah, I think uh, I think you made that case as well as it could have been made, which is still for me titanically unconvincing. Hmm. Um, which I, I I say with no kind of. Uh, aggressive connotations but i i think uh that the scale 
of the losses on all sides is, you know, we, we can both agree on the horrific nature of that. I'm not saying that you brushed over that at all. Um, I also think the, 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 another problem with comparing Iraq before the war and now is um, it's still such a young state and it's it's in many ways so dysfunctional that who knows how that will look in five years. And I guess there's some extent to which you can always, you can just keep saying that. I mean, yeah. uh, it's like, I don't know, if someone, if I was saying, oh, he's never going to give up alcohol. He, he's never going to be able to quit. And then I keep saying for the rest of his life, you know, give it, give him another week and he'll be back on the booze. <laughs> um, but I, I think Adam Tooze wrote a very good essay on his Substack about the the kind of massive institutional buildup of dysfunction and uh, the terrible consequences that that could have. But I, I also think there's just something, there's something dubious about saying um, after such a, a, a weight of human loss, was it worth it or not? I think that's something in general we should leave to historians 300 years ahead. Mm. Uh, rather than commentators two decades ahead. Mm. Although I know that that does raise the question of, you know, where is the line? Yeah, no. Um... Is, is it okay if I ask you a question which is semi-related? Oh. Yes, of course. How, how is your, your Hitchens project? Oh, um, well, let me, let me come on to that because... Uh... <laughs> but right now, let's talk about Iraq. I'll 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 come on to that. But um, um, but what else I still have it in my mind? Um, mm -hmm. um, in response to to uh, the Iraq stuff. Um, yeah, I think more and more. I mean, I've kind of flip flopped on the issue quite a lot. Um, but more and more, I just and you know, I get you know, it's it's, it's based on counterfactuals and what ifs. But I just don't see what the alternative was. I just don't think. I mean, I think every possible outcome would have been bad in some way. Yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely and agree with this that. Was, you know, the overthrow of Saddam Hussein was the best thing to do at that moment. Um, and though it could have been conducted better in the years that followed, um, I, I just, I just can't see my way, and that may be a limitation on my part um but i just can't see a way that um um that that anything else should have been done or could have been done it was just i think that was really the only solution in the end despite everything uh, yeah mm. i mean two points i'd make to that one of them is just a matter of us having different moral premises which is um the, the level of loss from the invaders, quite apart from the invaded, on a cause which I don't believe was at all in our national interest. Um, I, I think, from my kind of um, um, paleocon with a Union Jack splashed over it perspective, <laughs> um, would make it bad anyway. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, I I, I see the problem. Because I, I think there are some leftists who'd like to believe that really you could have just kind of bunged a few million quid to the Iraqi opposition and way we've overthrown Saddam in a wonderful revolution and nobody died. And obviously that wasn't going to happen. 
Um, and who knows? I mean, it is possible there's an alternative universe where it descended into the most terrific civil war imaginable, kind of Syria plus, and more people did end up dying. I mean, it's possible. It's not impossible. But definitely, I think, 20 more years of Saddam uh, or son of Saddam uh, would have been preferable to what did happen, which I don't, I don't at all say because that wouldn't have been a horrific circumstance because Saddam's sons were somehow even more psychopathic than he was, which is quite an achievement. <clears throat> but considering what we're comparing it to, which has to include the birth of ISIS and its mm. flourishing across the Middle East, even if that was a second order consequence. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and I've, I've written before as well, that I mean, as much as I still think that probably was the right thing to do, uh, I mean, there's just no denying the fact that, you know, Al-Qaeda was effectively defeated um, after the invasion of Afghanistan. Um, and the invasion of Iraq provided the conditions that allowed it to um, come back in even worse form, uh, which ultimately, of course, led to uh, Islamic State rising. So I, I completely accept that. I'm just not sure that that wouldn't have happened anyway in a much worse way. And it's not, it's not yeah, impossible. I accept that it's completely, you know, it's, it's, it's all speculation. Um, but I think, yeah, I think well, that goes back to what I was saying about how there's a, there's a certain point at which, unless you're dealing with like, um, should I press this red button? Is a nuclear bomb coming or is it not? There's a certain point at which counterfactuals should mm. we should maybe just leave to one side, and uh, that's only my perspective, but um. I do. I mean, one of my... otherwise, I think it legitimizes the kind of Eric Hobsbawm attitude towards communism mm. <laughs> uh, of kind of, well, you know, yeah, millions dead, but, uh, and I'm not saying that your your attitude is is uh, no, no. morally equivalent of to that, but I, I think it's uh, it's the kind of impulse that it uh, it excuses, perhaps, perhaps. I do remember speaking to someone uh, who was like a committed Maoist. <laughs> he was like, yeah, you know, the Cultural Revolution, it wasn't great. And, the, you know, the Great Leap Forward, we made some mistakes. But, but, and I can't even remember what his but was, but it wasn't very convincing. Uh, as it happens, I did, I've also had a conversation with somebody who's a pretty... Um, Chinese communist um, uh, ideologue, uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I, I get that I, that calculation. I, I think maybe his but was, but you know, this was the and this is a common Maoist talking point, um, you know. But uh, you know, this period was was also the greatest raising out of poverty in in history. Uh, that you know that uh, this was the fastest. Um, uh, you know, uh, um, raising of the standard of living, and you know, more people were raised out of poverty in this period than uh, have ever been before. Which is uh, an excuse that's for yeah, it's fascinatingly never applied to capitalism. 
Yes, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, yes. Which is which is hard, but but there we go. But yes, on, on, I mean, I would say that I mean, maybe my difference with that is not that it's not that I'm saying it's okay to kill millions of people in pursuit of oh yeah yeah an aim, some aim. I just think that in that particular situation, there was on balance no other way, which is of course very much disputable. But I do think on balance that I come down to, to that opinion. I do agree that the best of two bad worlds is morally different from the best world. <laughs> that's that's definitely true. But I, I yeah, I still think it's 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 dubious moral grounds. Mm-hmm. And uh uh and also there is a you know, there is a world where it's, it's difficult to foresee because who knows what would have happened in those 20 years. But there is also a world where there is some kind of revolution against Saddam, which is successful uh, without uh, such a scale of suffering. So it's not just uh, it's not just the, the, the prospects of a continuation of Ba'athism, even if that is one possibility. Mm. No, though I do say that I'd I'd, I'm not sure that, I mean, yes, in some possible world, uh, there could have been a revolution against Saddam. But I think based on everything that we know about Saddam in this world, uh, in this well, universe. That's true. I, I, I think the, 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 that alternative universe would probably involve Saddam popping his clogs of natural causes and then um, his squabbling children not quite working things out. So, you know, a lot, a lot can change in 20 years. Um, it is a that. picture of health, but we'll we'll never know because he swang from the end of a rope, which yes was was not undeserved. No, <laughs> no, but um, on uh, um, you know, I mean, one of my, I mean, a couple of my other criticisms that I think I mentioned in that article, um, you know, I think you know some of the arguments at the time for the war were just absurd. Uh, and that includes people like Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens. Um, you know, he did make a very good case in many ways, but some of the things he said were just, even at the time, um, just, you know, just very silly. Mm. You know, he, I mean, he later criticised Bush and Blair for hyping up the WMD case, but he had he had written earlier, um, you know, that... Uh, <laughs> that uh, uh, you know, Saddam is going to get weapons soon. He's 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 talking to North Korea. He's going to you know uh, create these weapons, and then we're all going to pay for it. And the only way to uh, ensure that Saddam doesn't have WMDs is to invade. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those were pretty weak arguments. Um, I th- uh, I think Hitchens was a man who, once he'd committed himself to a fight, was going to use every weapon at his disposal. Hmm. Uh, He's, he, he, if you're involved in a street fight with him, and this is not necessarily a criticism, you know, he would be kneeing you in the groin and pulling your hair, and <laughs> you know, he was uh, he was all in for the fight as his brother is. Mm. <clears throat> so I mean, who knows if he really, in a rational sense, believed that Saddam did have those WMDs? I mean, I'm not saying he was lying. But I think there's some there's some extent to which once he decided that something was a good thing to do, everything was in favor of the case. Mm. Yeah. 
rather than it being, you know, eight of one and four of another. Mm. Um, I mean, for some reason that just, did you ever hear that anecdote from Ian McEwen? Um, where he, he, he spoke about back in the 80s. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why this reminds me of it, but um, um, I mean, I, I'm not sure, I can't quite uh, remember the details, but basically, I think, um, you know, Hitchens and McEwen and Amos, uh, you know, uh, they were, they, came, like, they, they went to Amos's house, McEwen and Hitchens, Mm. Um, and as they had, you know, on their way there, there was this group of yobs um, harassing some women. And Hitchens, once he reached the house, uh, said, OK, now we have to go and confront those young men and we have to go and, you know, defend those uh, those women who are being harassed. And uh, and so and so, you know, they, they tramped back over uh, <laughs> to the place that this was happening. And uh, and luckily, those young men and young women were gone. Um, but Ian McEwen, uh, sort of, uh, you know, bringing up the rear was just like, oh God, what the hell is going on? You know, we're like, look at us, we're going to, like, this bunch of middle aged men, we're going to confront a group of youths to, uh, <laughs> to, to uh, <laughs> defend the honor of these young women. I think I think it was Hitchens who also had a funny anecdote about how Edward Said was with Hitchens' wife when someone stole her bag. And Hitchens reflected that if that had been him, he would have chased the person who stole the bag and possibly made a fool of himself. And Said uh, took the slightly more pragmatic step of taking her out shopping and buying another bag, <laughs> uh, which he he reflected quite amusingly on the di- the difference in character traits there. Well, um, just just to round off the Iraq thing, um, my my other. Criticism of it is that, in retrospect, it's made um, interventionism a lot more difficult because every time something happens, Syria, Libya, you know, there's always the spectre of Iraq. Hmm. Um, And I I think it would have been so much better to have intervened in some way in Syria in 2011, 2012. Um, But the fear was this will turn into another Iraq. Uh, and that's also why they, you know, Obama left Libya um, early. Uh, you know, I don't want this to turn into another Iraq. Um, so I think, and you, you see it with Ukraine as well. Um, every, I mean, every intervention that's happened, it's like Iraq is the is the spectre at the feast, and it prevents because because not every situation is Iraq. Um, that's and, true. I, I think I think in in fairness to my fellow. Generally speaking, anti-interventionists. There are, you know, we could we could also look back to Vietnam. Um, we could also look back to various failed interventions in the eighties. Uh, but I mean, to be fair to your point, there have also been successful intervention interventions, like uh, Britain intervening in Sierra Leone. Mm. Um, so it's not. It's definitely not um, a, a clean sweep from either side to continue misusing sporting analogies. <laughs> uh, so I, 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 I take the point that people do kind of just say, but Iraq. Um, but I, I think that the skeptical case is, is broader and uh, is broader and deeper than that. Mm. Um, in the same sense that interventionists 
uh, I'm not saying you, but other other interventionists will often resort to uh, referencing World War Two as if the case for defeating uh, Hussein was the same as the case for defeating Hitler. I mean, yeah. sadly, we all have people on our side who who make the the, the most crude argument available to them. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, my, my problem with the, the sort of bots Iraq argument is. I mean, I, I recently I, I, I debated, um, you know, the intervention in Afghanistan with a uh, with a friend, um, and uh, you know, it's it's not that I think, okay, every time something bad happens, we have to you know invade the entire country and and try to set up a government, but it's just it's just that every you know they're very different circumstances all the time, and sometimes that will require invasion like Afghanistan. Um, at other times, it will require an intervention of the Bosnian Kosovo sort. Um, but the principle behind it is just that here are things that we can do, um, things that we can do to help. Um, and you know whether that whether that means full scale invasion or simply some airstrikes, um, you know those are things that we should be open to doing. And uh, and so the so the but Iraq thing. I think misses that point because it's not always going to be, you know, just the same as Iraq. It's not always going to be a full invasion. Um, but because Iraq went so sour, um, any kind of intervention uh, of whatever type at any level has become such a, um, you know, a poison, a poisonous thing for any politician to advocate. And I think in some cases that's led to some very regrettable mistakes again syria libya um you know the fear of iraq has uh, has has really wounded the interventionist case and some of that is self-inflicted yes but some of it is also unfair from the point of view of anti-interventionists yeah i mean um obviously libya had some terrible consequences as well, but I guess I, I'm not enough of an expert on that to debate whether those consequences could have been avoided with a more long-term presence in the country. Well, just, uh, just... God knows, sometimes it's tempting to wish we had more influence in Libya today, uh, even if that's a slightly imperial impulse. Uh, we We do have a lot of issues related to the way they met they, they still manage to their nation now so I, I could see the argument for sticking around there although of course there's also the argument that uh which is uh i don't want to keep us up all night debating but of course there's the argument that staying out altogether might have been more prudent but there's a there, there's a there's a almost unbreachable divide between uh a worldview which is premised on real politic and a worldview which is premised on a kind of more uh, roaming humanitarianism, which you know it can also bl blur into opportunism. But I, I know that there is the the humanitarian instinct there in many intellectual cases. Uh, but I, I guess the the reason I mention that divide is people often cross it by making slightly disingenuous arguments of convenience so 
I, I think there are anti-interventionists who fundamentally they don't want to intervene in a situation, whatever. But rather than saying, I don't care about this place and it's not our business, they'll say, oh, it could turn into another Iraq. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I suppose that's... I think just, just to expand on that point, sorry for interrupting. I mean, I'm, I'm someone who's quite sceptical about outcomes in Ukraine. But mm. there, there definitely are some people on my broad side who I think would be more honest if they just said, frankly, I want Russia to win. Because uh, I think it's a good counterbalance to American influence. Uh, I'm not saying that's like a, a sweeping majority opinion, of course, but there there are voices who say, oh, this is terrible and unwinnable and Russia are doing so well, where I, I, I think what they mean is uh, it's quite good that Russia is doing well. Yeah. Well, I mean, at, at the crudest level of that, there is a Tucker Carlson who quite he explicitly said, uh, you know, why shouldn't I root for Russia? You know what? In fact, I do root for Russia. Well, I mean, that, that's that's exactly what, that, what that, you're saying. The crudest label that is that impulse. I mean, yeah. If if he said that, I didn't catch that quote. But if he said that, I mean, at least at least you can't fault the honesty. He said something very much like it. Um, I can provide the source, so I'm not just making it up. It's not fake news. Yeah, yeah. And if I'm wrong, Jamie, 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 pull it up, Jamie. Pull it up. Sorry? No, that's a Joe Rogan experience. All right. <laughs> Jamie, pull it up. And then a little Google screen will oh, yeah. work interaction. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, I just, I can't resist making one point about Libya. Mm. Which is that everyone thinks that the West went into Libya and fucked it up. Mm. Um, but I mean, actually, Libya was in a state of pretty atrocious civil war before that happened. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's not as if we just took a, st a state that was full of uh, sunshine and lollipops and uh, created a violent situation. And the the intervention was, I mean, it was actually much more justified legally than the Iraq War. Um, you know, it was sanctioned by the UN and by the Arab League. Um, and Obama is often quoted as saying Libya was my greatest mistake. Um, but what he actually said was not staying in Libya, you know, just going in and getting out quickly mm. was my greatest mistake. You know, we should have stayed for longer and and and, and did a lot more. Um, but the fear, again, the Iraq fear, um, was what would have inspired him to to withdraw uh, almost immediately after Gaddafi had been. Um, overthrown and killed. Yeah, I, I, I see the argument, and I, I, I think, uh, I think possibly he was more concerned about Afghanistan, and not to start another argument. <laughs> but as, as, as much as I can understand the case against withdrawal in Afghanistan or on those kind of humanist grounds, um, I think even someone who is in favour of staying has to admit that the case for staying is premised on the astonishing failure of uh, state, you know, nation building mm. uh, that made the state so weak 
that the Tally Band could just sweep through more or less unhindered. Mm. Uh, you have to be slightly careful making that argument because uh, that also came after the Afghan military had just been beaten and blasted and uh, lost thousands and thousands of poor young men. So uh, it's not as if everyone just gave up and went home. But um, definitely very little had been accomplished in two decades in the ways of way of building functioning institutions. So I wonder if there was just a general pessimism about the ability of Western states to uh, encourage the development of functioning institutions. And when I look at our institutions, I kind of see where that pessimism is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I mean, uh, let's not get into Afghanistan. I've already done a debate on this. Ah, <laughs> but, I'll, um, I'll look at that. I'll look at that. But but uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I broadly agree with with what you're saying there. Though I do have some caveats. Um, so to to move on then from this um, particular debate, actually, no, not to move on from it, um, but to quickly um, discuss Ukraine. Um, yeah, what, what you know, what what do you think is the end game in Ukraine? I mean. Again, I think, as you said, we have very differing starting points. You know, um, you know, I think, uh, personally, my opinion is, arm them to the hilt and destroy Russia. Um, and I think that's the best course all round. I think that's the best in terms of avoiding more conflict and in terms of avoiding nuclear conflict in particular. Um, and how how uh, achievable that is is debatable of course but I think it is achievable and I think that's the best way to go and I kind of take the and again maybe that maybe you could say oh you're just trying to appropriate the prestige of Orwell but I always come back to Orwell uh, his quote about the Spanish Civil War which is you know whatever the imperfections on either side there's always one side in war that stands more or less for progress and one side that stands more or less for reaction. There's always one side uh, that should be supported and that it would be better if they won uh, compared to the other side, which stands for um, barbarism. Um, and that's effectively, the essentially, the, 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 the stance that I take on Ukraine, is that for all its imperfections, um, Ukraine ultimately is a struggling democracy that's been invaded by its neighbour um, whose leader has explicitly said for a very long time uh, that he desires the restoration of some kind of Russian Im Im imperium you know um, and simply on that basis realpolitik aside that's why Ukraine must be supported until the very end but also on 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 the on the side, you know, on the on the point, the sort of realism point, you know, ultimately, I think it's much more dangerous if Russia is allowed to simply invade and to take a chunk of territory off of a neighbor just because it's a nuclear power and because we're too afraid to stand up to that. I think a Russian victory in whatever form is a very clear signal to everyone else in the world that as long as you have nuclear weapons, you can do what you like. Um, and that's the worst possible incentive 
You know, that, that says, okay, develop your own nuclear weapons um, and invade whoever you like. And ultimately, the, you know, incentivizing um, everyone else to, 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 uh, to, to create their own nuclear weapons and to increase nuclear proliferation, that ultimately is much more risky and much more dangerous um, than, you know, simply defeating Russia in the here and now. You know, if they win, nuclear war is much more likely, I would say. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant, but... No, that's fine. I mean, I think one thing I'd say to Orwell's quote is I think the Republican side did stand for barbarism. So uh, not necessarily the, <laughs> the, the doomed anarchists that he was fighting with, but but uh, that that's completely tangential. Um, I think what you say about nuclear pr- proliferation is true and interesting. It's definitely true that you can't just let away nuclear powers get away with anything because then everybody will want to be a nuclear power and uh, there's absolutely no disincentive to do it because they can't rely on protection for anybody. Um, with that said, there's always going to be a limit to that protection. And uh, Russia clearly hasn't got away with it. Uh I, 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 I think even if they won tomorrow, it would be hard for them to frame it as a, a rousing triumph. Um, that's slightly diverging from the point I was getting from, but I, I, I think there's there's truth to it. There's, there's no sense now in which Russia has a, a wonderful victory, which its people are going to cheer for centuries, as much as I'm sure Putin would like them to. Um something I'd like to refer to then is, I mean, America's enemies around the time of the war in Iraq, America's kind of larger geopolitical, maybe rivals is a better word. They didn't really need to do anything against America as much as they disagreed with the invasion. They just kind of let America overextend itself. Um, And I think to some extent, Russia has been allowed to overextend itself already and has uh, been completely embarrassed given that clearly at the beginning they thought they were going to have a very comprehensive and swift victory. I think the prospect for Ukraine achieving absolute victory is very narrow. And also that if they did invade Russian territory, that's when... uh, the, the nuclear alarms would really start ticking in Moscow. I mean, ju- just this week it was reported that a Russian plane had almost opened fire on a British plane last September. So even now, as we're disputing a fairly slim strip of land in uh, U- the Ukraine, uh, we've we've narrowly risked avoiding major escalation into international conflict. I think the war is going to end in some kind of deal sooner or later. And definitely I want Ukraine to have a very strong hand in that deal. Uh, But the talks are still going to happen. And there is some extent to which I'd rather they were sooner than later in as much as thousands and thousands of poor young Ukrainian men are dying on the battlefield. Uh, Ukraine is facing demographic catastrophe, whatever happens. 
but especially if the war continues. Yeah, Much and also, I mean, Russia are on, they're not winning, nobody's winning. That would be like, you know, that would be like looking at a really close fought round of an MMA fight and trying to say, you know, who's won? It's, it's almost impossible to do. But I, I think they have the advantage in as much as that means anything. So it's not as if we're looking at the prospect of major Ukrainian triumph. Sorry, that didn't really make much sense, all told. I was trying I was trying to approach your points in a very orderly and logical way, but now I feel like I've just thrown a well, kind of this, this is the, the orderly and logical podcast. Um yeah, yeah. You know, it's also the nuclear expert uh, podcast. Um so you know we, we have a lot of uh, skills here. Um no, you know, I you know, I think I mean just I mean, okay, again, tangential, but on the Orwell point, you know, it's it's not that he was saying uh, Republican Spain was not barbarous, and that mm. didn't happen. Well. I mean, God knows he certainly didn't say that. Um, but his point simply was that in most wars, there is one side um, that stands for something desirable, and another side that is, you know, completely barbarous. And I think with even with all of its flaws, you know, Orwell always wanted to see a Republican Spain um, win against Franco and his allies. Um, it's, it's almost a lesser of two evils situation. You know, there, there's one side usually that stands for some kind of progress, some kind of principle, um, and there's the other side which simply stands for domination and subjugation. I mean that. I think that there's some. I think that is kind of there's there's some truth to that here, in as much as it's a very clear case of an aggressive invasion. But I'm not sure about the extent to which history would bear that out. I mean, surely there are cases, you know, manifold cases in which uh, <clears throat> two nations are just kind of struggling to uh, make the best of their own interests. Now I'm just kind of making a historical point. Mm. But I think yeah. that, that historical point uh, should focus us more on pragmatism than idealism, which is not to say that the, the pragmatic case is entirely stacked in one direction, uh, mm. but that pragmatism should be foremost with idealism as the, I don't know, as the, the, the added extra if we can afford it. But I mean, uh, yeah, okay. So, and yeah, I know I I, I, I want to be clear. I know you did make a pragmatic case as well. I'm not I'm not trying to I'm not trying to say that you're you've been kind of throwing John Lennon esque <laughs> uh, cliches at me. But uh, I I think yeah, I think the pragmatism should come first. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, I think the 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 thing that I would say. To that is that it depends how we define pragmatism. Yeah, well, that's definitely true. You know, you know, utopia is built upon a heap of bodies, but pragmatism, at least in terms of foreign policy and real politics, has also, you know, caused immense suffering, often unnecessary suffering. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, there are always moral limits to how much you can further your own. National interest—that's true. It's not—it's not, it's not a, a kind of. 
there's always going to be competing standards mm. and some somewhere in the middle of that competition we find the right answer that's mm. true yeah no i mean <laughs> um i mean the 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 only two things i would say in response to what you just said a few minutes ago so you mentioned the you know the the tragedy of young ukrainian men dying in droves and of course it is a tragedy um but i mean whose fault is that oh completely well putin's it's, definitely yeah. <laughs> uh, you're not going to get any kind of moral moral disagreement from me there um but you know, war is not just about uh, moral superiority. It's also about finding the balance between what's morally right and what's practically possible. Now I'm just repeating myself. But I mean, it, yeah, Putin, Putin definitely has. Uh, and, and you know, the, the Kremlin at large has the moral responsibility for it. But... Um, and it also, it also depends on how you define... Um, again, I may be misremembering, but you mentioned, um, you know, Ukrainian invasion of Russian territory. But, uh, you know, how, I mean, how do you define Russian territory? Because if you simply say that Russia has grabbed this chunk of land from Ukraine and therefore it's now de facto Russian territory and Ukraine dares to take that back. That's a good, that's a very good point. I mean, I think, I think to be more specific, I would say... Probably Crimea is the, re the the biggest red line. You're at the kind of biggest, thickest red line that you're going to find in the Russian imagination. Which is not to say that necessarily Russia deserves to own Crimea, um, but that I, I think they they claim uh, spiritual ownership of it in a way that they wouldn't claim to own spiritual ownership of Mariupol. Um, and I was about to use the word hesitant. I was about to say I'd be hesitant of encouraging Ukrainians to take back Crimea. I think I'd be much something much more dire than hesitant. Hmm. Um, but I, I, I do take the point that just because a nation has claimed territory five minutes ago, that doesn't mean it owns it. Okay. So, I mean, you know, I would uh, love to <laughs> keep... Uh... Uh, discussing this subject, but I know that time is short. I know that um, time is getting on for you. Um, so to uh, round off, to finish off, um, I mean, you asked me about my project, my Hitchens project, uh, and, uh, you know, I can only say, I mean, I, I've become kind of superstitious about it. I hate it when people ask me that question. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's. I, I kind of wish I'd never announced it. It's a very private thing. Um, but it is. It's. It's going. It's going on, and it's taken a lot longer than I thought it would. Um, but it is. It's. It's. It's progressing. Uh, but that makes me wonder. Uh, to to return the. Uh, you know, to return serve. You also are writing a book, are you not? I am. It's, it's progressing. <laughs> it's progressing. I just took a week off work to focus on it. 
100%. And I did manage to focus on at least 75%. So that, that was a success. Nice, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm hope, hoping to finish it off this summer. Oh. Uh, so it's it's a struggle when you're young. You think that when you're going to write books in the future, you're just going to kind of sit at home and write books all the time. That's going to be a whole... <laughs> Your whole life is going to be writing books. Um, that's not quite how the world works. So it's, it's a difficult process finding time to do it. Mm. But uh, still an enjoyable one. And even when you have time, it's uh, somehow still difficult just to sit down and do it. That's true. I think the, the scale can be quite intimidating. Whereas with an article, you can be like you you have a sense of the shape of time that it's going to take, mm. and how it's gonna you're going to get from A to Z. Mm. The the scale of a book makes that difficult to do mentally. So yeah, it's, it's a challenge. Mm. Yeah, I mean no, from from my from my book, um, as I said, it's it's taken quite a long time, um, and I have come across several difficulties, including. You know, and perhaps I should have anticipated this, um, but, uh, you know, it's a very closed circle. Mm. Um, you know, the people who knew Hitchens, well, it's a very difficult uh, circle to break into. And, uh, you know, I've, I've made several forays uh, into that circle and I still hope to succeed. And... Perhaps it's not even necessary, and that might just be the fact that this is the first book that I've written, and the, certainly the first biography that I've written. Um, it might not be entirely necessary to, you know, to have the ear of, of the, the great friends and the lovers and the waves. Hmm. But so far, that's what I've been trying to do, just gathering information and trying to you know, engage with uh, those people. And it's it's a hell of a lot more difficult than you would think. What you need to do is appeal to their egos by saying you want to interview them about their work. <laughs> and then you somehow tentatively bring every question back to Christopher Hitchens. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I recommend. You say, hey, Ian, I'd love to interview you about your new novel. What do you think Christopher Hitchens would think about it? <laughs> I, think, I think that's the way. I will, I'll try that tactic now. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, I've read a lot of um, uh, biographies recently um, and I've been in contact with a few people who I think are interesting biographers to, you know, get their advice on how to approach it. And uh, there's this guy called, you probably won't have heard of him because I'd never heard of him, uh, but he's called Carl Rowlison. He's an American biographer who's written tons of biographies mm. and he um he uh you know he you know decades ago was doing a biography of susan sontag and uh you know he he tried to get in touch with with people who knew her and uh apparently hitchens himself he said you know in an email that's now available in the susan susan sontag papers archive at some university Said, oh no, he's definitely not the one to be to be um, uh, doing a biography of you, darling. Uh, 
So there is that there's that closed circle when it comes to any of these figures. And it's just almost impossible to break into. And yet Carol did manage to do that biography, despite this uh, um, rebuke. Uh, so I feel like perhaps I'm being slightly um, simplistic by trying to break into that circle and to get their views. Mm -hmm. Because perhaps that's not entirely necessary to write a good biography. And of course, most biographies are of dead people. So you, you, you don't necessarily need to have you know, met their families and friends to, to write a good biography of them. It's not as if there's a shortage of people who've written about Christopher Hitchens and their experiences with him. So yeah, uh, maybe not. And I, as you say, people, people sometimes write biographies of people who died hundreds of years ago when it's impossible to interview anybody who knew them. So I wouldn't say it's, obviously it would be nice, but I wouldn't say it'd be necessary. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, no, I think that may be my mistake. Anyway, that's my, that's my struggle, my uh, <laughs> ongoing struggle. Just, just don't, don't title your book that. <laughs> Mine, what? By, by now scarred and a certain German author. <laughs> okay so tell me well this is a good place to finish off but um uh tell me about your book how's that going i mean you've already kind of discussed it but you never said what's about so my book is going to be about uh well we were discussing faith earlier it's going to be about uh the question of uh god's existence and its relevance its ongoing relevance, and if it has that relevance today, uh, which is going to lead into discussions of new atheism and uh, what I'll broadly call cultural Christianity, the kind of more Petersonian attitude towards religion or kind of functionalist attitude towards religion. Uh, so, yeah, lots of broad, controversial subjects, and hopefully we'll be able to do another podcast in the future to discuss it do you have um any idea of when it will come out absolutely none <laughs> i mean i hope they're gonna like it and they won't say this is completely not what we were hoping it would be <laughs> so uh we'll see i, I mean I, I look forward to it though i think i think i will have some issues with it but <laughs> i shall certainly enjoy it no, I think you're going to finish it and say, I'm completely convinced. Ben, <laughs> I agree with you 100%. And I'm going to give you a five-star review on Amazon. <laughs> and buy copies for all my friends at Christmas. As everybody Not should. Not that I have optimistic expectations or anything. <laughs> no, no I, seriously, I, I do look forward to it. I think it'll be interesting read. Thank you. So I think uh, that brings us to quite a natural end, a little plug for your forthcoming book. Um, but if, if you have anything else to add, then now, now is the time. Absolutely. Bensixsmith.substack.com, The Zone. Subscribe tomorrow or Monday or whenever this is going to come out. <laughs> I think it'll be Monday. Uh, okay. So there that's that's the final the final message 
Absolutely. We've put Iraq to bed. We've put Ukraine to bed. We've put the Church of England to bed. Yeah, we've solved it all. The world is put to rights. <laughs> I think I, I think we, we, we both triumphantly agree with my perspectives. <laughs> and on that note... I, I remember... Uh, so, sorry for... Uh, I, I remember reading a, a, an exchange of opinions between... Uh, a Catholic philosopher and atheist commentator, and they they started very in a very kind of aggressive way, uh, and then kind of got much more pleasant as they realised they liked each other on a personal level. And <laughs> I, I just remember one line at the end where someone, one of them said, "I think someone needs to step in before we each violently de- declare the other the winner." <laughs> so, uh, can can you name those guys? That'd be. Uh, it was Edward Faser was the yeah. Christian philosopher and uh, John Derbyshire was the atheist uh-huh. commentator. <laughs> Do you know that reminds me? Uh... <laughs> Sorry, I just <laughs> I was I was coming to an end there, but now that reminds me of something. Um, you know, Orwell, you know, wrote a few negative things about people. Um, you know, H.G. Wells, for example. And uh, but Orwell was, uh, you know, he thought, you know, it's fine, it doesn't matter, you know, I don't care if anyone writes something bad about me. But when we meet in person, you know, we're we're just going to treat each other as two human beings, which I think is a very optimistic uh, viewpoint to take. That if you write a bad review of somebody, they're going to, you know, just disregard that and uh, be, you know, <laughs> completely friendly towards you. That's true. I think Orwell also said he didn't want. There was someone, I can't remember who, but I think there was someone who said he didn't want to meet them because then he might not be able to write so harshly about them. <laughs> Which is an enviable position to be in. But I, I think you're right. I don't I wouldn't uh I wouldn't feel entirely comfortable about meeting people I've written scathing book reviews about. <laughs> Fortunately, me and Dave Rubin don't go to the same parties. <laughs> Uh, okay on that note (laughs) we're definitely done thank you very much daniel thank you thank you